Welcome to the Religion and Story podcast. Uh, this week we have a special episode in that Daniel and I are in the same place. So it's so never happen again. Never happen again. And I guess it's not that special. So our topic for this week is church growth without compromising truth. Uh, the way we're going to talk about this is considering the different parts of that statement. How do churches grow? How do church, churches compromise truth? And then ask the question, do those two ever cross with each other? Are they, are they ever intertwined? Are they, are they ever related? So um, let me pass it around to the other brothers. How do churches compromise truth? So um, I think that churches most often compromise truth uh, when they are trying to make everyone feel good about their decisions, about their plans, about their, the goals for that congregation. Um, and, and that might, that much is probably already obvious. Um, mostly I would think it has to do with maybe ethical issues. No, it could sometimes deal with more church related things. Um, but I would think whenever there seems to be some sort of uh, ethical mandate in scripture that we are supposed to behave in a certain way, that we are supposed to act in a certain way, that it's at those times when um, ministers or elders or any sort of leader in the church has the most incentive to maybe brush aside their true convictions um, or the convictions of the congregation and maybe ignore those things for the sake of what's easier or what the sake of what more people want to hear or how more people, most people are already living. Um, Stephen, does that seem reasonable to you? Does that seem how you see churches compromising truth or does it take other forms? Yeah, I was going to say that um, you might have the occasional historical example of churches sticking to tradition uh, of things that uh, they really evolved from what you were hinting at, where churches are wanting to please the people rather than please God. And so they, they've missed the mark in that uh, aspect of uh, they're approaching their, if it's not just corporate worship, but how they're ministering um, their aiming at the wrong target where they're wanting to make people happy. Um, and what can we do to make ourselves happy? A lot of the times is um, whoever has the decision-making uh, capabilities, those people are wanting to do what's best for them. And um, sometimes that overlaps with what's, uh, command, uh, what has been commanded in scripture to the church. And sometimes it, it doesn't. Uh, and so, uh, when it does overlap with what God has commanded us to do and you're choosing to please yourself over what, um, and, and you got to really recognize a lot of the times those lines can be a little gray and the further and further you get away from um, what God, the clear commandments, then that's when you start really running into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not to put any pressure on you uh, earlier, you gave, your beginning statement was about um, sometimes this comes through traditions and wanting to 
hold to a certain tradition. Did you have anything specific in mind when you were thinking of that? Um, and like I uh, said immediately after that, those things do come from uh, other, those traditions wouldn't be in place unless uh, people had taken what scripture um, says, found a, um, a practical way of applying the commands God has given us, but then they've taken them one, two steps too far. It's very similar to what you might hear in your Sunday Bible class when you're talking about the teachers of the law. They uh, put all these rings around the law and say, not only will we not uh, work on the Sabbath, but we're not going to do this. And well, what, what about this situation? Uh, do we need to be technical yet? Okay, so we're going to make it one step further, just so we're not even coming close to uh, what could be considered a sin. Sure. And so you're really missing the heart of what God had wanted you to do. Why are we not working to begin with? Because God rested on day seven and is really in remembrance of him. Um, but yeah, that's um, uh, an example that doesn't really apply to the church too much uh, now, but the, the same methodology or uh, the process of how you get to that end point of developing a tradition it's not necessarily uh, in a practical uh, scenario for what the church should be doing. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you have thoughts on this compromising truth? Sure. Um, so, so I wanted to start off by telling a quick story uh, that you made me think about, Daniel, and then I'll tell one, Stephen, that you made me think about. Um, first is, is a story of an author, and he was writing a book about character. And uh, in the book, he uses the word sin. Now, th this is a Christian author, but he's writing for a secular audience. And his editor came back to him and said, why are you using the word sin? Like, you shouldn't say that. That's going to scare people away. And he said, well, that's what it is. It, it, it's, it is sin. Like, I can't change it. And they came up with some different suggestions and he eventually won out. Uh, and I don't think the book suffered in cells because of it. Um, I, I think there is this idea within churches that we need to sugarcoat. Uh, we need to play down the actual sins that are plaguing our churches. Um, and to just add another layer to this, Oftentimes what we see is that preachers will spend most of their time talking about the sins of the rest of the world. We'll talk about, uh, aren't we wonderful because we're not doing those things and we need to keep faithful to not uh, doing those sins on the outside. And while they are correct that we don't need to do those things, they're missing the truth of challenging our sins, challenging the sins of those that are there that morning sitting in the pews. Um, it, so we, we should have the balance of, of talking about the full gamut of the problems that we deal with as, as humans. So, so, that, so that's on one side. Uh, the other side, uh, Stephen, when you were talking about traditions, you were making me think about uh, two different uh, preachers that are outside of our fellowship uh, that have talked about this recently. Um, Francis Chan and Matt Chandler both have very recently uh, had books or sermons that have gotten a lot of attention where they talk about um, traditions or uh, worship that, that leads to, uh, to 
doing what we want, put, putting forward the idea that we need to be entertained or that we need to be happy about the way that we live as Christians rather than following the Christian model. And by Christian, I mean the Christ model of sacrificial living, of uncomfortable living. Um, I, w- I think the, the way Chan put it in one chapter of his books, uh, Letters to the Church, is if you are not um, if you're not facing any persecution, if you are if you are feeling comfortable always in your Christian life, perhaps you should think about um, the truths that you are living by. Are you compromising truth in order to be comfortable? Are you compromising truth in order to always be entertained in the way that you live your life? Uh, Chandler had uh, he used the word uh, overstimulation that we overstimulate ourselves. Uh, in order to uh, feel uh, a personal sense of of belonging rather than than thinking about the way that we are reacting to the God that gave us all things um, so, so so those are my qu- reactions I probably those weren't as quick as I thought they might be um, in addition to that I, I would say that churches will will compromise truth uh, by not facing their past not facing their demons and not realizing uh, those who are on the outside of their their congregations um, you know we we, uh, we are blessed in this nation to be able to choose where we worship and sometimes because we choose where we worship uh, we choose who we don't worship with um, we are commanded to to not overlook sins you know we're not uh, allowing people to to live their sinful lives within the church uh, but we are commanded to put us put aside our own sin and to worship with all. Uh, so I think about um, racial issues. I think about uh, language barriers that that rightfully sometimes separate us. I think about uh, as Stephen, you were mentioning traditions, uh, an argument that happened a generation ago and that no one remembers, uh, separating uh, congregations. And so I, I think that the The truths that we allow to take over are the truths of our own convenience rather than the truths that that unite people. So um, any other truths that we think that churches tend to compromise? Okay, let's let's spin this around to the other part of this, and then we'll try to join them together. Um, This is a positive question. Um, How do churches grow? And actually, before we get too far into this, uh, who wants to define what church growth means? Growing how? Growing in numbers? Growing spiritually? Some other way? All of the above? What do we think about that? Well, uh, the go-to thought for most people would be church growth is a, a growing church. A healthy church is going to be one that is ministering to people and more people. So quantity. Uh rather than quality of uh, spiritual life, not to say that quality of spiritual life is not important. I'm just saying that's what people think about whenever they're thinking about church growth. Um, If you have a church of 50 people and they are young in their faith and they start to grow uh, by reading their Bible more and they can effectively minister to other people and you don't see that church growing when numbers you would question what's going on there when in reality they are growing spiritually. Uh, But yes, that recognition of the number of people that are coming through the doors is what your, your go-to thought is when you're thinking about church growth. 
So uh, I'll put out one more quick story here. I, I think most of the times we, we do go, we want to go first to spiritual growth, uh, growing in the disciplines, growing in uh, the way that we practice our faith. Uh, but we can't say that numbers are unimportant. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers put it this way, uh, Tim Keller, he preaches in New York City, and he says, uh, God loves people, uh, and New York has a lot of people. God loves more people more, so he loves New York a lot. Uh, God wants there to, God desires that all men would be saved. He desires that all people would be saved. And so as we're thinking about um, numbers coming in, numbers mean that more people get to hear the gospel. Um, so we, we shouldn't shy away just because churches are growing. That's a good thing. All right. Uh, so Daniel, tell us how do churches grow? If you ha if you knew the answer to this, you'd be I, a consultant worth millions, but tell uh, us what you think. I did take a class, an undergrad called, uh, congregational growth. Um, and, uh, didn't make me, um, did terribly get, wise. Did you get an A? I did get an A in this right, class, so um, it was it wasn't too bad. So, um, interestingly, there there have been uh, strategies in every generation, or maybe even every decade, that uh, churches have tried for growing um, congregations, for bringing people in. Um, some of those, so some of those we we may be familiar with, even though they were more popular in previous generations. So handing out pamphlets, uh, radio or television commercials had been has been more popular in the past. Though all of these things are still present today. Um, uh, maybe in the eighties, but I could be wrong about that. Um, the popular strategy became. Uh, small groups and that has continued at least as of the time that I took my class and the, whatever research it was drawing from um, that continued to be the best and most common way for churches to uh, to try to grow beyond their their walls um, and so I mean I, I would I offer that still pe to people um, that that's probably the best way for churches to grow. Uh, it, in addition to offering spiritually. Well, yeah. So in addition to spiritual growth, which is kind of obvious that you're going and you're having these more intimate conversations. The idea is that it is a lot easier to invite people and bring them in to the church by having them start at, um, this, uh, this removed setting and then integrate into the, the worship service. Um, I, I, let me comment on that real quick. So I think that, yes, it is easier for people to um, come in and get that immediate uh, spiritual growth in a small group. But think about why are mega churches the size that they are? And the reason that they're growing um, a lot of times, a lot of times, and not this is just a generalization, is that how many of the members that go to the mega churches kind of just sit back in the crowd and in the shadows and are not involved in the church? Yeah. They go for the 
the wrong reasons. And I think the mega churches are probably aware of this, that you are, you have a lot of people that uh, you hope that um, whatever you're doing in your corporate worship assembly is reaching a lot of people. Um, but how can you make it stick? So they suffer the same problems that a smaller church is doing that way. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Mike. Well, not to go down, you know, not to get down on that, that point, but like you're saying, Stephen, both large churches and small churches suffer from the, uh, from those who attend who aren't trying to help out in any way. And, you know, that, that is um, a sad way to live the Christian life. Uh, it's just that when you have large numbers, you have more of those people. And it, uh, perhaps it becomes more obvious. And, and I don't think that there's a single mega church, no matter how large they are, that doesn't not want that, if I can say it that way. But also, pr- probably, most likely, they are planning on ways to integrate those people. They have the small groups. They have the ministries that are out in the communities that, and they're trying to plug people in. So, so we shouldn't uh, downgrade the congregations because that they are attracting people in. Perhaps uh, God is still working on that person. We, we know that he is still working. The, the seed takes a little longer uh, to grow in some cases. Right. So, yeah, let's move on and talk about um, – did, was there any other comments on growth? And I'll share one real quick. Um, growth, I think, comes when a community recognizes that you are serving them. Uh, you're providing a service, a ministry, whatever it may. I recently saw a, a video on YouTube where it talked about this mega church in Nigeria who uh, they started – they didn't start with this, but it stemmed from it. They had a men's soccer team that came from the church and that there was so much money flowing through the church that they were able to uh, have this team and all the player pool that they had to their, uh, in their hands. Now that team is a professional soccer team. And I think they came in second in their league in the premier league of Nigerian soccer. It's kind of an interesting story as far as ministry and a service that a church provided that went all the way up in a a certain uh, demographic of people that are often identified as secular. Um, Interesting to think about, though. So so I I think one of the lessons to draw there is visibility. When, When your congregation, your church is recognized for a soccer team or for a local ministry, maybe a feeding ministry, maybe it's a daycare that takes care of a, a lot of kids just from the community that aren't involved there, uh, that, that can help. Um, so, so let me uh, offer, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. Um, I, in, if, if you're not trying to move on from yeah. that, I, I wanted to sort of explore uh, maybe more traditional ways of growth, uh, maybe even things that we have negative feelings about. So we're talking about mega churches. I, I think, is it still the case that Joel Osteen's congregation in Houston is the largest congregation in the country? It's up, it's up there. Um, if not yet, yeah, it's certainly one of the largest. Um, and it's pretty easy for most people to look at his church and be 
critical of the the gospel, the version of the gospel being preached there. Um, but what have they done to bring that many people in? Not, and obviously we can critique this in, in our third and final right, section right. about if truth is being compromised there, but how, how is that working for them and for maybe other mega churches that aren't quite as, um, that we might not have such negative feelings about, um, such as, uh, uh, Timothy Keller's church in, in New York. I'm not one to speak on why Osteen's church is as big as it is. Uh, I would probably just start throwing out a bunch of generalizations. So do you guys have thoughts on what, what is successful there? I'll give one. And I think that this uh, applies across most mega churches, most large churches. And in fact, the number of large churches, let's say 500 or more that don't meet this uh, anytime it happens, I would be shocked. Um, they have good preaching. And by good, and let me clarify, let me clarify, by good, I mean uh, gifted speakers. Uh, there, there was one study, and in, uh, it's, it's almost really more of an anecdote in that the study wasn't done that well, and I'll tell you why. Uh, they, they were showing that the length of the sermon was correlated with the size of the church on average. The bigger the church you have, the longer the sermon. Now, the answer there is not that uh, just the small, you know, t- uh, church of 20 people should have their preacher go on for two or three hours. Really what's happening there is that what we see is that when you have gifted speakers and people want to hear them, they're more engaged with what they have to say. They can preach for 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour in some cases. And more people are engaged. I'm sorry, Stephen, go ahead. I was going to say, basically your point is they came to see the preacher and they're wanting to make sure that they're coming to uh, witness what they wanted to. Right. And because, so within churches of Christ, we're used to the model of uh, Sunday morning worship, Bible class, Sunday evening worship, Wednesday night class. Uh, many mega churches, uh, whether within churches of Christ or without, um, have gone to more of a model of we expect you to come once. And so within that once, they're wanting to extend uh, some amount. You're, you're not just having a one hour service, you're having a two hour service because you're wanting a longer sermon. Uh, communion plus uh, time to sing the, you know, it, it, it builds on itself because you're only expecting those people to come in once. This is speculation, but um, I, I think that this is not unreasonable, uh, especially given what you've just said, Michael, that um, in churches of Christ, at least there is this uh, pervading anxiety that if we update our, uh, worship service specifically regarding the music and uh, potentially bringing in instruments or maybe just a more uh, contemporary style of worship if your congregation is generally more traditional. Um, I, I imagine that while there may be some sort of uptick, some increase in attendance, people drawn to something more young and vibrant, perhaps, that what we see in these other congregations is not people seeking out a church that has the, um, the best worship experience, the best singing experience besides possibly whatever church Hillsong is performing at um, most weeks. But with that one exception, um, they're, they're going there 
for um, the preaching for that or possibly are in conjunction with the community. Though usually with those larger churches from the few times I've visited such congregations, there's, there's no community. It's, it's for the, um, it's for the speaking. And so I don't know if that sort of redirects our um, Stone Campbell anxiety about what we need to be doing. I, I would be skeptical to think that it has anything to do with our, singing or worship style. So, so let, let me throw out, um, I, I would agree with you, Daniel. I, I don't think that uh, singing uh, is going to make or break your congregation. Um, I think that you should want it to be better. And p- perhaps you might, you know, uh, get rid of the complaining of some members as, as you seek to improve learning new songs, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, let me go to the literature on on church growth uh, that that I'm familiar with, but also on on how get, how to, how to have people not leave. Uh, for anyone that's familiar with uh, business strategies and particularly uh, professional sales, uh, one statistic that is often cited is that it is uh, seven times easier to keep a customer than to get a new customer. Said another way. For every one customer you lose, you need to get seven new ones uh, in order to to keep the same amount of business. Um, Let's see, applying that business strategy to to church growth, one of the first things that church members should be aware of is keeping their members, uh, making sure that the people are there feel like they're part of a family. And so this isn't just a mega church issue. This is an everyday church issue, whether you're below a hundred or 250 or you're, you're, you know, 500, whatever, whatever your numbers are, um, making sure that there is a familial feel to your congregation, that people feel welcome. Uh, they know that they have friends they have someone to talk to. Um, a lot of uh, congregations, people have either been there for, 15 years or longer, or they came there specifically because they already have a a family member there. So think about your members that have been there for five years or less and have no family members there. Those are the the members that are most likely to leave uh, because of their lack of connections. They'll give you time. They'll give you even a few years in some cases. uh, But when there's no roots holding them there, they might look around to see if other congregations can provide them not only with sound doctrine, but also with friends. Um, another issue is just getting plugged in. You know, are people involved in ministries? Uh, that's, that's another way to, to keep pe- people around. We can talk about doctrinal disagreements that people have, uh, but if, if they don't feel like it's a place where their families can grow and flourish, then they're not likely to stay around. If you can't keep your own people, you're not going to grow. And how long have you been at your church? I have been at my congregation for coming up on three years. So you're still under that five-year mark. I, I'm sorry. Hey, I could I could leave at any moment. No, that, that, so uh, I'll, I'll cite my source. Uh, that's from uh, Why They Left uh, by uh, Flavel Yakely, who we, we've mentioned several times on this podcast. Uh, looking at research at why people leave churches. So I, I think that the growth question is intertwined with the leaving question. Right. Um, do you think that uh, this uh, c- kind of almost brings us full circle? 
um, the lack of uh, pressure that we put um, with the truth. We don't want to offend people and say that you uh, are doing something wrong. We sometimes preach a feel-good gospel, I guess is what it's often referred to as, but do you think the lack of maybe apologetics or um, the, say, lack of a sharpened sword is also a major contributor to why people are leaving? Or do you think that people that are knowledgeable, or that's more people leaving the faith in general, not necessarily your church? It, not to overgeneralize, and I, I hate to do this, I hate to do a generational thing here, but sometimes I think that um, if you're going to leave because of um, the, the preacher or a minister, your classroom teacher says that you're doing something wrong and you don't want to change your life, I think that that's probably a younger person um, who is still changing the way they think about things. I think it's kind of rare for someone in their 30s, late 30s, who has a family, to uh, to not know what they're getting themselves into uh, with any given congregation, and to um, to have something publicly in their life uh, where they are so offended that they think that they need to leave. Steve, Stephen, I'm actually I, I wonder, do you agree with me on that? Do you think that that's a younger person problem? Uh, for the most part, yeah, and I think that also um, something that it's very possibly correlated is young people do not like to commit to things, um, which this is something that you can see even within a youth group where uh, a youth minister will do their best to get kids to commit to an activity that the youth group is going to be doing because they often recognize that a kid will hold out until the last minute to commit to that just to see if something else that, uh, strikes their interest more will become available. And so they, uh, it makes it almost impossible for anything to get done in the youth group or in our case in the church, because nobody is willing to commit up front because uh, that fear of missing out is always looming in the back of their head. What else is going to be available? Um, do I want to go to this Bible study on a Tuesday night? Well, what if, my friends are all going out. I want to make sure I'm available to do that. I don't want to miss out on what other things might be more fun uh, than going to a Bible study. And so that really takes away from the growth of a church. Daniel, as our resident young person, do you agree with this? We're in the same generation. Oh, okay. okay. Are we, are all three of us millennials? I think I am. Um, you count as a millennial. I'd have to Google that. I think that, that there's a special name for kind of the older millennials because they didn't completely grow up in the internet age, but that is not, that is off topic. Sorry. Um, so let's get, let's get to our last piece of this podcast. I was just going to say, oh, Playboy yeah, Yakely needs to add, uh, needs to do a revision of why they left and do a FOMO chapter on their fear of missing out chapter. I like and it. I, I, cause I think what Stephen is saying is, is right, at least for uh, youth engagement. Now, regarding older people, I think, Michael, you were hinting at we have to differentiate people not coming to church, which would maybe be more apologetics focused and people just sort of losing their faith or becoming more apathetic um, rather than, and then the category of people leaving a church. 
um, either for another one or just, which I would think is uh, less often just leaving and stop going anywhere. That's probably more often they're going for the, the greener grass, um, which presumably doesn't exist, but um, sorry. So uh, let's go ahead. Let's try to synergize these thoughts together, or maybe there's some thoughts that we purposely left out because we think that there are times when churches pursue growth at the expense of truth. So guys, as we're thinking about this, um, how do churches pursue growth at the expense of truth and how do we avoid that? So I think this discussion is often focusing on something Stephen already brought up, which is youth groups. Um, that, this is how I normally think of it. And maybe this is because my youth group days aren't that far behind me. Um, but it has a lot to do with uh, yeah, the idea of if I have pizza at a youth event, then I'm going to get kids to come because kids love pizza. Love and pizza. then they're hooked. We have them. We preach the gospel to them, get them dunked in the water, and we're good to go. Um, and it's these shallow uh, youth mechanisms to get people in the doors um, that don't create real disciples and that end up um, uh, letting kids leave as they get older in the youth group or maybe when they go off to college, they don't have a real faith to sustain them through those uh, formative years. Now, I, I say all that to say I'm sympathetic to that, and we may discuss that a lot as we move forward. Um, but at the same time, I, I get the idea there, and I think we're all aware of the idea being that um, we, we want to get people in the doors first. If they never want to engage in a conversation, if they never want to be in a church, then we have close to 0% chance of making a difference in their lives. Um, and incorporating the gospel into their lives. But if we can get them in the door with something as shallow as pizza or a trip to Six Flags, then um, we've at least gone up to that 1%. I think that there needs to be a separation there between, um, I wouldn't call it bribing, but uh, incentivizing in a way. Yeah. We need to make sure that we are providing a service that can be genuinely wanted. And when... Uh, it's hard to do that at the youth level. Um, uh, how can a kid see the need of the spiritual growth that you're able to provide them uh, until they have that void in their life that they can feel and it's more tangible and they need to fill that. Um, and I will tell you the origin of the pizza issue that you brought up for the youth group. Can, its roots can be traced back to the first time a church put a kitchen in their church building and, and I mean, this was a big deal for churches back then, but that was the first time that they decided, yeah, we're going to do something for us. We're going to eat our meals here in our building. This is heresy. <laughs> no, um, no it, it can be, uh, you have to be able to identify the difference between catering to someone and actually serving someone. And when you really dig into the, the, the definition or the actions that are involved in serving, you'll actually be giving something beneficial to somebody that they can keep and cherish and grow from and value uh, because they can go get pizza at other places. So very good point, Daniel. Michael? You really have to consider your PTB at your pizza to baptism ratio. So 
Yeah. Oh. Church analytics is a growing field, and that's one of the more important statistics. Yeah, um, a budget board for a church, that should be right on the front. Right, yeah. <laughs> attendance, last week's attendance, budget, this week's giving, PTB. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I'm trying to think about how – so y'all, y'all have already talked about this, where uh, you bring in people for entertainment, food, whatever it is, um, in some ways, it's kind of what VBS is. You're bringing, we're going to, we're going to take care of your kids. We're going to fill them up with sugar. We're going to entertain them, run them around real quick. So they'll, they'll go to bed. Uh, and hopefully that will transform the life of the child. And you know, people like VBS, it, it, it can work. Maybe, maybe they'll bring their, their parents in too. Um, church growth or bringing people in is more effective when you bring in parents and specifically fathers, but we, we can save that for another time. But, but I wonder sometimes if even in our, with our older uh, generations, if sometimes we, um, we plant seeds of mercy, we, we, we plan projects where we're going to feed the homeless or I don't know, something of, of missional value, uh, where we're, we're trying to bring people into it. But if we divorce that from the gospel message, I think in some ways we can promote growth. We can promote even spiritual growth, but divorcing it from the truth. Um, we can, we can promote the idea that uh, you'll feel better if you serve someone, if you are a part of something greater than yourself. Uh, but it's still a, selfish salvation it's something that is removed from actually uh digging into yourself finding nothing and looking to god uh, to fill you looking looking to god to cover you um i i think that that it i'll I'll admit i hope that it's not the biggest problem i don't see a lot of people even getting involved in the first place but i do see a craving amongst older generations for some some bigger life events, some some more meaning in their lives, and churches could be compromised. I, I think about um, uh, food banks that are uh, maybe directed by churches or they're populated by uh, by church leaders, uh, and they'll have volunteer groups come from secular organizations, and it's a good thing to be involved in those yeah. ministries. But are we coupling those? with some intentional way to introduce them to the real gospel message. I was going to ask you, how soon does the gospel need to be introduced? I think your final statement just then actually answers it, which is immediately, but it doesn't have to be um, the, the boldest, most direct version of the gospel if we are constantly giving them the truth um but it, it can come um in pieces parts drip drip um, drip drip yeah but from the beginning that, that sounds reasonable to me uh Stephen, do you have a thought on that because that that is really the crux of the issue i think um how how soon um and how uh, dramatically, do you need to be giving them the gospel as you're bringing them in in these other ways? And l- let me tell you one other thing. So let's even expand this to the ultimate ministry place, work. You know, where I go into work each day, uh, the people I interact with who I know their names, we share life together, but 
how quickly do I get to the gospel message with someone um, when, when I have those repeated interactions? Well, I think in a workplace scenario, when you are asked to give an answer for your faith, when that time comes, then you need to be 100% open with it and not just leave it up for questioning for that person to figure out. Uh, if, if you are given the opportunity, take it. Um, as far as um, other situations where you're given opportunities to teach, where you have authority, you're a youth minister, you're a parent of your children. Um, at, at some point you need to recognize, just like scripture says, they've been, they've been infants, they've been taking the milk, and now it's time for them to eat some meat. And I think you are, uh, you're, you're responsible to press on your children or those that you are in charge of teaching that you have responsibility for you need to en encourage them to move along and get serious about their faith in some ways. So we've, we've talked about a lot of issues and in some ways we've opened up more cans of worms than perhaps worms that we've killed. I, I don't know what the phrase is there, uh, but uh, because we're running out of time, uh, why don't we do uh, an around the horn? Uh, we'll let everyone kind of give what's, what's your closing thought? What are you thinking about right now? that you would hope our listeners would chew on for the next week. Um, Dana, why don't you get us started? Um, I, I think it's trying to find this balance in your mind. This, this sort of last question that we're dealing with is uh, how forthright are you to be um, and how soon uh, are there, uh, are there, challenges that you're dealing with that do you need to bring those up immediately perhaps maybe if you think that doubt is your common ground with this person um this is how you can get them interested but um there, there's a lot of nuance that goes into this question i think uh, everyone will have to begin to answer it for themselves uh, how how do i um bring this in to personal evangelism and uh, how does my church do it for uh, everyone that it's seeking to bring in? Stephen, what, what are your final thoughts? As far as um, encouraging spiritual growth and not compromising truth, if you are a leader of a church uh, and you're feeling that your, uh, your church, the people that you're ministering to are just kind of going through the motions and you think, well, I've tried these people. Um, I can't just force it down their throats. Re-examine the, the situation and try and be more urgent about it. Uh, you may fear that you're going to scare them away, but maybe something needs to be said to break the ice in that way. Once you actually put a little pressure on them, they'll have to examine themselves and step up to the plate. Maybe that's the whole thing that it's been waiting on the entire time. If, On the other hand, if you're somebody who is a participant in church, think about the truth that's being preached to you. And are, is your church making you go through the most motions just by how things are going on before you think, well, I just need to get up and leave, get involved in your church and try and make things change and encourage people to re really re-examine what's going on there. Um, I, I would offer up, just some practical advice to, to non-church leaders, uh, to people who find themselves in the pew and are wondering, 
how do I, um, how do I invite people in to this wonderful gift that I've been given? And how do I, how do I really express to them uh, the true love that I've, I've experienced? Um, this, this is a, a small first step, but try to find some, uh, some books uh, by Christians who are not revolutionaries themselves. Perhaps they're not huge uh, church leaders that have led, led a movement, but have led small lives, um, who have led simple lives, uh, but are, are recognized for their service. Um, this is just one author, and I'm sure that there are many others. I think about Henry Nouwen, uh, who is a, is a, a scholar, uh, but, but really uh, someone who just practices the presence of God in serving those around him, uh, doing the simple things that, um, that actually make a difference in the lives around him. Um, and also books about uh, spiritual disciplines. Uh, so that your life is first focused in Christ. And uh, while we don't do the disciplines in order to impress others, uh, I think that when we allow Christ to come into our lives, uh, he will change us and the world can't help but notice. So um, thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us in this conversation. We're looking forward to next week as we continue uh, this, this season thinking about issues that affect our faith, our churches, uh, and our relationships with God. Uh, if you like what you've heard, leave us a review, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and we'll talk to you next week.